Hey everyone, how's it going? It's Connor here and I'm delighted to be back with another episode of Money and Plants, the top business and health podcast in the country. This is a special episode for me because I know this one will take me to over 4,000 downloads of the show. So I just want to say thanks to everyone for listening and sharing and sending the podcast to a friend. Uh, The content for me, it's been a really good experience. I've enjoyed it. And the whole idea, the reason why I started the show was to try and educate, empower and inspire all of us, me included, to make better decisions in our own life. The thing is, we are living through a once in a 100 year event in terms of the current pandemic in COVID-19. And we are also now entering into what the Bank of England have said is going to be the worst recession in 300 years. So it is the perfect storm. And although it is a fascinating and incredible time to be alive, it is also extremely, extremely difficult. Because as I was walking through Belfast City Centre on Tuesday of this week, I've noticed more and more shop fronts and more and more shutters are starting to close. I'm noticing many more to let boards because what is happening is people are running out of money and also what I'm also sensing is that people are running out of hope and that is not a good combination for any kind of healthy society. So look, I've had lots and I do have lots of content to talk about and it's been really good. I hope you guys are enjoying it and I would really appreciate if you continue on to Give me some feedback on the episodes and if you wanted to share this episode with one other person, that would be absolutely fantastic. So thanks for that. This week's show, I think is going to be a really good one. I have two fantastic guests on this episode. Coming up very, very shortly is the Chief Economist of the Currency and one of Ireland's best economic brains, Mr. Stephen Kinsler. I have a fantastic conversation with Stephen. We talk about Brexit, we talk about the pandemic, we talk about the economy, we talk about the national debt. And what I'm really trying to do is lift the bonnet with some of these really important economic issues that most of us don't really understand. And one of the, I suppose, one of my objectives with Money and Plants is to break this stuff down so each of us can actually understand what people are talking about whenever they talk about sovereign debt, they talk about depressions, recessions, what does all of that mean? I have a fantastic conversation coming up in a few minutes time with Stephen Kinsella. Don't miss it. I then speak to Seamus Lehney, uh, the policy manager of Logistics UK. You've probably seen Seamus on the news or listened to him on the radio in the last nine months. He's one of the voices of reason with Brexit. Seamus represents thousands of businesses and me and Seamus have a brilliant conversation about Brexit. We talk about the best possible outcome of Brexit. We talk about the worst possible outcome and with less than 100 days to Northern Ireland and the UK finally leaves the European Union, the whole thing has got very, very chaotic. But before we talk to this week's guests, I am going to go with the part of the show where I share my thoughts of the week. And on this episode, I'm going to be talking about my thoughts on back to school. I'm also going to be talking about my views on people returning to the office and I'm also going to share some of my thoughts and ideas and anxieties and concerns around Brexit as well. So buckle up. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Let's roll the tape.
How many times have you applied for business support or a loan with your bank and after weeks and months you get what we call in the industry as a slow no. A very frustrating, difficult process. If it's funding you're after, why don't you give the sponsors of this week's podcast a call, ClearPath Finance. You can check them out on the website, it's www.clearpathfinance.com. .co.uk. With over 70 different lenders on the platform, it's highly likely that the team at ClearPath Finance will be able to find a funding solution for your business. The sponsors of this week's show is the team at ClearPath Finance. So it's now time for my thoughts for the week and I suppose there's been lots of things I've been thinking about over the last number of months and over the summer, and we've covered quite a bit of ground in the previous episodes of the podcast around some of this stuff as well. But there's three things I really want to talk about that I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of weeks in particular. And the first thing is the significance and the importance of back to school. I'm not sure about you. I don't know what way you're fixed from a listening perspective, if you've got kids or you don't have kids. But for me, I've got two young kids. Uh, one is seven and the other is about to turn 10. And, you know, it was just an incredible moment the morning that the kids got back to school. I think it was fantastic for their mental health, for their physical health. You know, just the adulation and the joy. And certainly over the last couple of weeks, both of them have expressed to be back with their friends in the classroom, learning, growing you know, fighting and arguing, um, just living life. And I think it's a really, really important part of our economy. I think it's a huge part of growing up. And, you know, if we accept that we're now six, seven months into the pandemic, most people who have their finger on the pulse around this stuff are suggesting that this is going to go on for another 12 months. So I think it was so important from a society point of view that our kids got back to school. I think it's really a good thing. And I was looking at a report this week where only 3% of Northern Ireland parents are unhappy with children returning to school this term. So there's an overwhelming majority from parents who appear to be all happy. And certainly the parents that I've been speaking to over the last couple of weeks are, uh, I suppose they're relieved to some extent because, you know, Google Classrooms and homeschooling, I think the novelty wore off after a couple of weeks. And I think it has relieved a lot of the pressure which many parents and single parents have felt under uh, trying to cope with everything else that's going on in addition to trying to homeschool their children. So that was really good. In terms of the survey, the result was taken from a recent survey carried out by Northern Ireland for Kids magazine. It also revealed that almost half were happy to see the children make the return to school with another 10% feeling confident. So on the return to school thing, that's something I've been thinking about over the summer. It's really good um, and hopefully, hopefully that continues as we head into the winter months. I've also then been thinking about back to the office and trying to encourage staff and people to go back to the office. I think this is a bit of a tricky one. And I think in the last week or so with the, I suppose, move towards another lockdown or a mini lockdown, if you want to call it that, with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the executive coming out in the last number of days to basically encourage people to work from home where you can. 
Um, I think it's really interesting and I think it's it's really devastating for our local economy uh, that people continue to work from home. And I think there's probably a balance to be struck somewhere in between, like all of these things. I think it's a it's a balance between working from home and those who decide to return to the office. But I think from a legislative point of view, and I think from a government perspective and a government point of view, I think what they should do is they should put the onus back to the employer. So for me personally, I'm an employer. You know, we have up to six staff at any one time in our building. And I think really it should sit with the employer. So if you're an employer and you can provide a safe environment for your staff to come back to work, then your staff should come back to work. If you're an employer and you're uncomfortable with that and you can't provide an environment which is safe for your staff to return to work, then people, in my view, should, should work from home. That would be my sort of take on that. And certainly in our own workplace, in our own business, um, all of our staff have been back in now for a couple of months. We have a safe environment. We uh, can honor the social distancing uh, situation within the office. We've lots of room in there. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we are able to manage the risk in such a way that our staff can return to work. And I think it's a really good thing from a productivity point of view. You know, working from home is great. And I think there's an element of Zoom fatigue kicking in, along with uh, pandemic fatigue and everything else. But I just don't think it's the same. And I and for me personally, in the, in the finance and debt space, uh, certainly whenever our team's together, we have... Uh, we are certainly a lot more productive. It's hard to manage uh, running a team and running a company uh, whenever people are working remotely. So I think from an economic point of view and an economic activity perspective, I just don't think it's the same uh, productivity levels if you're managing a team uh, remotely. I just don't think that works. And I think from a city centre perspective, I think what's happening and what has been happening in the last number of months is that I think I'm right in this stand to be corrected that huge percentages of the civil service are still not back in Belfast. And even, you know, if you look around the big accountancy firms and the legal practices in Belfast and the banks, and many of our banks are still not back due to come back to, to January even. And I think what that has left is a, a huge hole in our city centre. I think it's caused a huge amount of economic damage to the local businesses who, who basically rely on office workers coming into town and buying their products. I think it's a real problem. Um, so for me personally, I've been sort of focal enough on this where if you can provide a safe environment, then I think you should try and encourage those who want to come back to work. Uh, and many people actually do want to come back to work in terms of their own mental health uh, reasons where they want to improve their mental health. They want to, you know, I've personally missed um, meeting my customers, meeting my clients and meeting my staff. That social interaction you cannot get on Zoom. So I think that's been so, that's something I've been thinking about over the summer is, you know, how do we manage this? What's the best way to deal with this? So I think we should move it on to the employer in terms of the responsibility side of things. And if the employer can provide a, a safe working environment, uh, I think that, you know, people should have the choice to go back into the office. And then finally, I want to wrap up my thoughts for the week with some commentary on Brexit. Whenever the Brexit vote happened about three years ago in 2016, uh, over the first 12 months, I was quite vocal. I'm, uh, I sit on the uh, policy committee of the Federation of Small Businesses, and I shared my thoughts on this with uh, some of my colleagues on that board. The challenge with Brexit was always going to be 
if we've seen a movement of capital and investment out of the Northern Irish economy into the Republic of Ireland economy. And I think what happened fairly quickly after the Brexit vote, you've seen two of Northern Ireland's largest companies uh, in Almac and Glendimplex, more or less within a few months, they immediately invested millions, millions of pounds into extending uh, and creating new companies, or sorry, a new facility in the Republic of Ireland. So that capital, that money was leaving the Northern Irish economy. And I think the problem with Brexit, which is now very, very clear, is that Brexit makes the Northern Ireland economy poor. The way it works is, you know, the most successful countries in the world, uh, and if you want to look at our neighbours in the Republic of Ireland, you know, over the last 20 years, they've went to one of the top performing economies in Europe, where that economy is a very welcoming economy. The tax regime is very favourable to international investment, to foreign direct investment. And what has happened in Dublin, Cork and Galway, is you've seen an influx of billions of pounds and euros of investment over the last 20 years, tens of thousands of jobs. And what that has done is completely transformed the Republic of Ireland economy. The same cannot be said for Northern Ireland and the difficulty, and you're going to hear this from Seamus Lehenny in my conversation, which is coming up in this podcast. What Brexit does, it basically sets up barriers to entry. It makes it more difficult to get into Northern Ireland. It makes it more difficult for businesses to sell out of Northern Ireland. There are regulatory checks at the very least going to come in. There's additional costs, which is going to be incurred by Northern Ireland businesses. And Brexit is just not good for business. And anyone in the business community will tell you that. And that's a real, real problem for Northern Ireland economy, which is already on the life support machine. The Northern Ireland economy is a £50 billion economy. It is a small economy. We need to be uh, welcoming people to this country, not driving them away. And I've been thinking about this for the last few years, and certainly over the last couple of months, and given the behaviour of the British government, particularly in the last few weeks, uh, it's going to be a very chaotic period. We've just under 100 days to go to Brexit, and we still do not know, is there going to be a deal? Is there going to be no deal? It's turning into uh, a bit of a shit show, um, and it's very hard to arrive at any other conclusion on Brexit than it's going to be an economic disaster for the Northern Irish economy. now time to welcome my first guest and I'm delighted that Professor Stephen Kinsella from The Currency, I suppose what is The Currency? Well I suppose The Currency publication, it's www.thecurrency.news, it's as close as you're going to get to the Financial Times. The boys are doing fantastic work down there, Tom Lyons and Ian Kehoe set the business up and they have an incredible range of breaking stories about the economy, about business, about deals and Stephen is the chief economist of that publication. So check it out online. It's www.thecurrency.news. So Stephen is back on Money and Plants and I have a really wide-ranging conversation this time with Stephen. We talk about everything from the national debt. What does that mean? How do you pay it back? We talk about taxes. You know, it's one thing borrowing a load of money from the European Central Bank or the Bank of England to cover the cost of COVID, which is going to cost billions and billions of pounds. But how are we supposed to pay this money back? 
Stephen shares some ideas. He wrote a piece in the Currency a few weeks ago, which probably didn't win him any popularity contest because who wants to hear, particularly in the middle of a pandemic, that we might have to pay more tax. But Stephen talks about a means-tested wealth tax, which I think makes perfect sense. We then start talking about the problems within our banking system. We know that the non-performing loan situation within every single bank in Ireland and the UK right now is huge. Bank of Ireland have already written off a billion euro of loans and costs as, a, as in relation to COVID. And we were only six months in. What is that total going to look like in 12 months time? And Stephen describes himself in our conversation as a student of a banking crisis. He has studied it for many, many years. So who better to talk to about a banking crisis and non-performing loans than Professor Kinsella. It's a brilliant conversation. I got lots out of it. I hope you do too. Let's roll the tape. Okay, Stephen, you're welcome back to Money and Plants. It's great to have you back on the show. How are you keeping? I'm great. I'm great. Um, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, super. Um, it's good to get you back on. It's now, I think we're six months into the pandemic and you know, all hell seems to be breaking loose again. It's a very chaotic time. Um, but the last time we spoke, there's a number of things I really want to get through. I want to pick your brains on some of these, uh, some of the economic impacts of, of what we're going to discuss here. But I think the last time we spoke, we, we talked about a huge ship recovery, a V, a W, even there was talk of a Nike, a swish ship recovery. And I'm just wondering, where does the Republic of Ireland sit at the moment in terms of six months into the pandemic? How do you see things right now in terms of any recovery or is it too early to start talking about recoveries? I uh, know it's not too early to start talking about recoveries. Um, the, the reality is the market always prices the recovery too late. Uh, and the economic history of the last 50 years has shown us that the economy rebounds really quickly. Um, but when we're talking about the economy, we talk about the macro economy, right? So, so everyone all together. Um, and so it, it, it is probably the case that we'll see a swoosh shape recovery. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to come with it. Uh, so we, we now know um, for the, we did the last time you and I spoke, we didn't really know who was getting the pandemic unemployment payment. It was just kind of everybody. Um, now it's, we, we have a very good sense of it. Um, the people who are, who are most affected by the crisis are people in accommodation, retail, transport. They're typically young. They typically rent. They typically have very little income. And if they're in SMEs, uh, the SME has about six weeks to eight weeks of financing uh, that they can call on without needing to go near a bank. So we, we sort of understand that the recovery will come, it'll be fast, but it won't be for everyone. And that requires a really large focus on fiscal policy. So in order to not end up with a really extreme outcome where, you know, uh, people like me, you know, professors and people who work in giant multinationals are grand and you know, people people who don't have back gardens, who have landlords screaming at them, and who have uncertain jobs are not grand. That's not an acceptable outcome uh, from a for a, for any progressive nation. And Ireland is a highly progressive nation. So um, yeah, in 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 terms of making the uh, making the case for the recovery, I really really think that um, you know we're coming up to when we're recording this, we're kind of three weeks away from a budget, four weeks away from a budget. Um, and as the budget 
process is taking place, I really hope there's a focus on really progressive policies that sort of help the people at the lower end of the distribution um, uh, far more than, than people like me. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, one of the things that really fascinates me, obviously, I'm, I'm based in Northern Ireland. We've an all-island business. But in terms of, you know, the cost of COVID and paying for COVID, one of, the, one of the biggest challenges that faces the Stormont executive, the Northern Ireland politicians, is we've no real fiscal levers. And I'm very, very frustrated. I've been calling for a COVID recovery fund now for the last couple of months. I think our politicians should go to London and request a £10 billion COVID recovery fund for Northern Ireland to help mitigate um, some of the economic damage that's been done here. I think it's a really good opportunity, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of take up on that at the moment here. It's quite dim and quite depressing in terms of our political masters in Northern Ireland foreseeing what's happening at the moment and then going and asking for the money. But I, I, I'm equally then frustrated because, you know, in terms of the Republic of Ireland, you know, I think I've, I've read where you have written that, you know, you've projected that COVID might cost up to 20 billion possibly. So I'm just wondering if you touch on that, and I appreciate we're only six months in, and it might cost a lot more than this, but where is it at at the moment? Uh, roughly, what do you think it's going to cost the Republic of Ireland Exchequer? And then where does that money come from? So, I mean, the Central Bank in Ireland doesn't, so if you just talk me through that for our listeners to understand that, that'd be yeah, great. Sure. So, so the, 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 the simplest way to think about it is in terms of the government funding, government financing. So the government spends um, all up net, about 65 to 70 billion, and it takes in about the same amount in taxes. And uh, so roughly speaking, just before the pandemic hit, um, the economy was more or less, the finances were in balance or, or on the way into surplus, um, which is a really signature achievement by the Minister of Finance, Pascal Donoghue, that was completely ignored in the uh, general election. But that's, that, that was then. Um, it looks like we're going to run a budget deficit of nearly 30 billion euros, somewhere between 25 and 30 billion euros. So that's, that's effectively spending on, um, on increased health, on increased social protection, on increased everything. Um, so where's the money coming to pay for that? Let's call it 30 billion, could be a bit less, depends. Um, it's coming from borrowing. So uh, the European Central Bank and other central banks have, have agreed that they will expand their balance sheets so as to make it almost free for countries to, to borrow. Happy days. The problem with that is that, so, so effectively the Irish state could walk out tomorrow and say, we want to borrow 100 billion euros and that will be fine. And they would get it for next to nothing. And that would also be fine. But in 10 years' time, whenever the, the bond rolls over, they're going to have to refinance that $100 billion. And who knows, in 10 years' time, what the interest rate will be. Will it be zero? Will it be negative? Will it be 20%? We don't know, right? Um, so the Irish, uh, Irish policymakers are having to thread a, a fine line where they don't want to borrow too much and be seen as fisc fiscally profligate. They don't want to borrow too little and really hurt people. They want to be kind of in the middle of the pack there. And that seems to be the, just looking at the data, that seems to be the track that the, um, the, the Irish authorities are coming from. So it's coming from borrowing. It's next to free, um, but it is not free when you have to roll it over in seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years time. So basically for, so no matter, so say COVID, you've sort of budgeted maybe 20 or 30 billion in the round roughly, that, that might be the cost of COVID. Um, and the idea then is to borrow off the European Central Bank at next to nothing of a cost. Um, 
and 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 I've been following the ECB, so they're pretty much sort of saying, "Well, look, you know, whatever you need, you know, to the country, whatever you need, ask us for it, and and we'll we'll throw whatever we have to throw at this." So that's really interesting. But th there's something there that I think a lot of people haven't picked up on because I have heard other economists saying, "You know, it's a brilliant opportunity to, you know, let's build houses for the next 10, 10 years, let's borrow the money over a hundred years, some kind of perpetual fund." But then whenever you lift the bonnet on that, because you have said this, and I have heard Pascal O'Donnell who say this as well, you know, can you not borrow the money now at next to no cost and fix that for 50 or 100 years or 20 years? Or is that only a short-term uh, pricing mechanism, i.e. three to five years? Because that's key, obviously. Yeah, look, if we could borrow 100 billion at a 50-year at, um, at a, at a time horizon, then I'd absolutely be up for that. <clears throat> There's no evidence that that's happening in the market. Um, the, the, the market is, is, is borrowing 5, 10, 20 years. So it's not quite the same thing. And you'd be surprised how quickly 10 years would catch up on you, you know? So you know, the Irish state borrowed um, uh, massively 10 years ago to, or 11 years ago, to fix the finances of the country. And if everybody said, ah, sure, it's only 10 years, you know, um, uh, to 10 years is miles away, you know, here we are now. And can you imagine if we had to pay the full costs of the bailout today you know now as, as it happened they kicked it out into the future um some somewhere up to 2040 in fact some bits of it but the um the main part i think that's that's very important to understand is you you have to balance the needs of the present with the needs of the future yeah and it's very hard to do that like it's really hard and if i thought that we could alter the fundamental structure of our society by borrowing then I would be 100% up for that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not. And the reason I'm not is, is I've studied the history of financial crises around the world, and they always start with somebody borrowing too much. Um, we don't have our own currency. We can't devalue against it, right? So what somebody's saying really is, I want to expose the state to greater fiscal risk. Mm -hmm. Fine. And I have no issue with taking on risk as long as I understand the upside and the downside. So you want to borrow more to be, do a green recovery and build more houses and stuff. Cool. No worries with that. Um, I, I see the need for both, right? The question is, how are you going to fund it? Who's going to build it? Do we have the capacity to do it? Where are all the builders going to come from? Where's all the steel going to come from? Where are all the turbines going to come from, right? I want, the, I want to see the detail. Anyone, and I've been, I've been at this game a long time, Connor, and anyone who comes at you with a simple story yeah. that's somehow linear, like just increase it and we'll be grand, they're wrong. And they, they, they very often, very often what they're doing is they're serving a political agenda in the guise of expertise. And I, I really disagree with that. I, I'm much happier when I speak on a topic to have a really firm, firm basis in the data, mm -hmm. right? And the data don't suggest that faced with a bunch of uh, next to free money, Ireland does great with capital expenditure. You know, okay. quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. For, faced with a whole bunch of next to free money, um, uh, Irish capital expenditure seems to have a funny way of going way, 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 way over budget. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't see the mechanism that connects increased funding to increased delivery. Sure. in a really tangible way and if i did and it, and the, and that data changed then i'd change my tune okay i understand 
Um, and, and there are quite a few people who are, who are putting it out there that it's quite simple to solve a lot of these complex problems. But I accept, I accept a lot of what you're saying. Just one of, the, one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast and start the podcast was to break things down. Because I think if you can explain it simple enough, then most people can understand what you're talking about. It, things, topics get complicated once people, I think, they're not really good at explaining things. So in terms of the national debt, right, there's 200 million euro more or less of national debt. You just said at the start of the podcast that you know Ireland sort of raises 65 billion euro in taxes and it sort of costs in around that. So you know you have a bit of surplus. So the country's been doing really well over the last number of years, you know, in terms of being able to pay for itself. Am I right then in assuming that uh, with a national debt figure, you know, is that paid down or can you just explain as as simple form as you can? What is the national debt? How do we how do we pay that back? How do we pay that down? So the first thing to understand is that countries can't get repossessed, right? They're fundamentally different from households and firms. Uh, And that if you as a household said, I wish to borrow for a mortgage and I will pay you back in a hundred years, the bank will say, uh, you're in the wrong, very large white building, out you go, right? Um, the, The reality is that most households can borrow maximum a 30 year time horizon, and even then, that's that's fairly risky, you know. And, you, and and financial advisors probably wouldn't advise people to do that. But but you know, it has happened. It happened in, in during the boom here. Um, most people borrow twenty years, fifteen years. Um, so that's the first thing. The time horizon is really different, um, uh, and countries tend to be very different in how they're financed because they've got multiple income streams. So they've got taxes for income and consumption and wealth and all kinds of stuff, which can go up and down over time. The national debt, you know, in a perfect world, the national debt would be either zero or infinite. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but typically speaking, when the, when the nation builds up debt, it almost never repays that debt. Almost never. Um, there are a couple of examples of that. For example, Australia. Um, um, in fact, Ireland in the in the in the um, in the pre-Celtic Tiger or the pre the, the pre-boom era was actually a very low, a very low had a very low level of net debt uh, to GDP. But uh, the reality is the 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 thing that matters most for a nation is can it afford the interest expenditure in a given year. So let's say on all of its borrowing, it doesn't matter that the, the, the stock of debt, the actual 200 billion or whatever, is less important than the amount of interest that you have to pay on servicing that debt, right? So if you've got a huge stock of debt, even if the interest rate is tiny, you have a large amount of money that you have to pay. And every year, the Irish state has to pay some three, four, five billion euros in interest rate payments on the national debt that it has accrued. So when you say, well, that's five billion quid or three, four, five billion quid that could have been spent on hospitals or green projects or whatever, but it's not, it's being spent on debt that was rolled up in years past. You start to see the opportunity cost. And remember, all we're doing now at the moment is adding to debt to really just keep the show on the road to make sure that people struggle on and to have some kind of continuity. If we don't do that, we understand people are in real trouble, right? Um, but there is a question about how much to borrow and what is appropriate to borrow and where one should borrow and so forth. Um, and so when I think about the national debt, I really think about it a, a bit like the nation is a bank. And the bank is issuing an asset, a piece of paper. And it's saying, 
give us your money now. We'll give you the same money back in a couple of years' time plus a, a coupon, plus an interest payment. And that's fine. And, and, and as long as the, the state is trustworthy and creditworthy, people will take that money because they want a bit of safety in their portfolio. Um, and countries are pretty safe. So you'll have a bit of equities, you'll have a bit of government bonds, you might have a bit of sort of mad Bitcoin stuff and some gold, whatever. And so there tend to, that people tend to use bonds in two, government bonds in two ways. One is a, as, as just a store of, of, of value. And the other is as a liquidity head. So you, you, you trade in and out of bonds. So the Italian sovereign bond market is you, you, you buy Italian bonds to sell up to, to buy other things because you can transfer in and out of them very quickly. In both cases, the, the state is really an asset issuer as opposed to necessarily just borrowing. So sometimes it's probably better to think of the state as kind of a bank you know, and paying or, or issuing stock in a certain sense, and then paying its shareholders, which is the financial market to the rest of the world. Um, the more you do this, the more you do this, the more you realize that the stock is far less important than the flow of interest payments. And if the average person knew how, what was, what couldn't, ha what could not have been, what they had, what, what the Minister of Finance had to give up, if you like, to get them paid and have the state be credit worthy, I think there'd be a very different approach to debt. I'm not against debt. I think it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think you should borrow for current spending unless it's an emergency. Uh, it's a bit, I, uh, the same reason I don't put my credit card, put my household on my credit, or my household holiday on my credit card. Mm -hmm. It's just a poor choice, right? Um, borrowing for structural stuff, borrowing for, you know, new university buildings or, uh, uh, turbines or hospitals or whatever that's fine but you've got to pay that back yeah you know and whenever, uh, whenever uh, we're, so whenever we're doing like loans and business loans and, and funding businesses throughout the country one of the key uh, things that we look at is the repayment capacity so mm. and uh, of the business to repay the loan so in terms of that national debt figure of 200 million billion or whatever it is is that might rise then with COVID to maybe 220 or 230 is that is that possible uh, could go up even further. I mean, you know, you've yeah. got to remember COVID won't be around next year yeah. or the year after. It'll be probably with us for three years, right? There'll be an economic damage, yeah. you know, for that time. The fiscal council the, 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 in, in the Republic has, it kind of, it's, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's imagining a fiscal impact of around the, the, that yeah. period. So we could go up to 250 billion. Yeah. So barely handled, you know, like. But for as yeah. long as you can afford to repay the interest payments, so say it's 1%, it's 2.5 billion on, on 250 billion. That then goes on to your 65 billion of the cost to run the country. So as long as you can service, so it's like an interest-only mortgage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. In a certain sense. And, and, there's, and there's never any any real uh, requirement from the people you owe the money to, or the bond, the bondholders you owe the money to, to pay the money back in full unless you default. Is that it? Yeah, and 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 what'll happen is you'll issue more bonds in 2030 uh, to the value of, or maybe in excess of what you uh, borrowed in 2020. You'll pay off the original uh, uh, bondholder in 2020, and then you'll have a little bit more left over in 2030. So you're so, always rolling over the debt from so one to like, another to another to another. Right. So it's like a magic money tree, then. In a sense, as uh, it's like I said, it's great uh, up until the moment that it's not. Up until the moment that people won't lend to you, which is what happened to the state in in 2008 and 2009. Uh, it's what happened to Argentina, you know, nine or ten times this century or and last.
But for as um, long as you can pay your, your uh, as long as you can service the, the interest and service the debt, like any loan, your lenders will be happy enough, more or less. Yeah, yeah that seems fair enough. Um, Very good. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, the bond markets can be scary places, but mm -hmm. in general, in general, if you can show that you have a credible path to repayment, mm -hmm. you're going to be okay. Now, if so, so if you take the state from 200 billion, mm -hmm. you know, at, let's say it's not really at 1%, let's say, let's say it's at 2%, right? 200 billion at, you know, an average rate of 2% um, over that period, you take it to 300 billion, right? There's, a, there's an immense fiscal cost that comes from that, right? And you don't, you don't have to be a, you don't have a PhD in economics to understand the maths of this. Like mm -hmm. every single year, you're, you're, you have to come up with taxes. You raise taxes mm -hmm. to pay interest on stuff that you have borrowed 10, 15 years in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah. And then you need to, you, you need, it needs to be the case that the growth rate of the economy, so the economy is growing at two, three, four, five percent 5% a year, has to be greater than the growth rate of your debt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, and that's not true for us right now. Yeah, okay. Well, look, it's it is a fascinating topic in terms of national debt and how that all works. You did write a, an article, um, it's, it, it's a, maybe didn't win you any popularity contest, was a couple of no. about paying, you know, who, who wants to hear that they need to be paying more tax in the middle of a pandemic and all of that. But I, I thought there was good balance there to your piece and the currency. I would encourage people to read it. But could you give us the short format then? So, so you know, we, we've just talked about the national debt. We've talked about a COVID bill. And this applies to the UK and Ireland and every single country. We're going to have a bill for COVID. It's going to cost them a lot of money. So, I mean, how, how, how did you set out then? Are we going to pay for this? How, does, how, you, how do you see this playing out? So what I did was I just imagined uh, the day after the COVID vaccine, mm -hmm. right? So the day after there will be a COVID vaccine, the day after it, uh, we have a much larger public sector and we have a much smaller private sector. The public sector is paid for by the private sector. If the private sector is smaller, it must be the case that in some sense it has to pay more for this larger public sector. The question then is who pays, right? So in Ireland or in the Republic, there's a very, very progressive income tax distribution. People at the bottom of the income tax distribution pay very little tax in, in, on their income. On other taxes like consumption, VAT, et cetera, they pay quite a lot. Yeah. But in terms, of, in terms of, like, let's say, not deciles one and two, because they're very poor people. You're talking about three, four, five, six. Um, you know, what, what you would imagine to be the middle class. Mm -hmm. quite, pay, pay not that much tax and then income tax, and then relative to countries like Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, almost none, right? And so we have, there has been a movement in the last <clears throat> probably 10 years uh, towards, if you like, a left-leaning position on the state. That is, the, 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 the generation that's probably behind you, you and I have a strong preference for state-led provision of services, right? Um, particularly housing and health. Those two, and, and, and they cost a lot. Now, uh, like I said to you, you probably can't borrow indefinitely for either of those services, right? So it means that you're almost certainly going to need to increase taxes. Yeah. Now, the tax base can go up to any level that is politically sustainable. Remember, you're not 
increasing taxes in order to bail out bondholders. You're increasing taxes to help vulnerable people in your country, right? Um, so the question is, who should pay those taxes? The first group that should pay taxes, pay an increased uh, level of taxes, are um, employers. So in in Ireland, employer PRSI or social contributions are incredibly low. Um, the 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 employers will will kick and scream and say, "Oh no, no, no we you know we're we 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 will have to lay people off if that's the case. If you if you, if you increase the cost of cost per employee, and that will be true. But what will be more true is then we will actually have social insurance contributions that'll help pay increased pension payments, increase sick pay, increase regulation, and most probably most importantly, increase training and retraining. We know we're going to have to do that. Second group that's going to have to pay more are uh, wealthy people, people who have assets. Um, <clears throat> uh, COVID has shown us that there is essentially two types of people uh, in, in, in the world. There's, there's people who move electrons around and have uh, you know, quite comfortable lives, have some stable asset ownership, and um, they are in general pretty much okay. So like the definition of pandemic privilege is a stable income in a back garden. And then you've got the other type of person who moves things around in the real world and deals with real people and uh, they don't have a stable income or a stable asset base. So COVID has massively affected the second group and barely affected the first. In fact, if anything, they're probably better off financially because they actually have savings. So it strikes me that those people need to be taxed more on their net worth. What I mean by that is you could have a situation where somebody has a mortgage for a million pounds, right? But they, and that, that's, so that's their liability, but their asset is a, is a house worth 1.1 million, right? So I don't think you should, you should be, be taxed on, a, on an asset worth 1.2 million, right? I think you should get taxed on the 0.1 million. That is your net worth, yeah? I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's socially fair to, um, I don't think it's socially fair to tax people who are in negative equity. But it's kind of like a means-tested wealth tax you're talking about. It is. It's a means-tested wealth tax. It's precisely what it is. Um, it will not actually raise that much money, but it will equalize the wealth distribution of the country, which is quite stark and getting worse um, yeah. over time. So that should be a good thing. That's the, so that's the second tax. The third tax, which is very politically unpopular, um, but I think needs to happen, is people at the lower ends of the income distribution need to start paying more tax. The way to do that is not to have essentially two rates of tax, is to have a graduated tax system where you go 5%, 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, 60%, right? Um, well, maybe not, maybe not 60%. You go all the way up to 50%, maybe, right? Or even 40%, whatever. Give the people at the top a bit of, a, a bit of an income tax cut um, uh, and and uh, um, in order for their for their wealth tax to to, to do that, and the reason for doing this is fundamentally the income tax is about somewhere between thirty five and forty percent of all taxes that we take in. If you are not going to tax property and wealth, really, like like over like property is the overwhelming asset class, right? If you're not taxing property, you're not doing it right. Um, if, 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 uh, if you're taxing wealthy people, then by definition, you, you know, you have to be taxing people at the lower ends of the distribution because they're going to benefit as well. 
right? Now, again, probably not deciles one and two, but you know, pe people at the lower ends. Now, now, that might sound like you're taking from the poor people, yeah. which is precisely true, right? right? It's precisely true. But the reason that you're doing that is because it's getting handed back in better services, right? Mm -hmm. And you, know, you might think, oh my God, that's gonna be a disaster. But if you look at the Nordic countries, right? You look at the kind of services that the average person can uh, access. Um, they're much, much better. They're the kind of services that people here call for. Better childcare, universal healthcare, better higher education, free higher education. Yeah. All that's expensive, you know? Um, and with a bigger population, there's going to be 6 million people on this island. Well, yeah. on the island, actually, there's already nearly six million people, but um, in the Republic, you know, we're trending towards six million people by 2040. Very good question is how to pay for them and the services that they want. And the answer is an increased uh, uh, tax take, you know, in the long run. Um, there, there, there's no, um, there's no sort of socialist hellhole that we'll go to, you know. I, th I think it's a politi it's, it's, it's politically sensitive, especially now with this kind of government and mm. it's where it's it's got off the horrendous it's very complicated start but it's, it hasn't been great and it's it's how i think most people would understand okay with big bills we have to pay a bit more means tested and there's probably a fair way of doing that mm -hmm. the, the challenge then is 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 the man in the street who knows very little about this how do you how do you counter the argument then where it's the tax regime in our in ireland which is which is causing the real issue for the apples of this world who who pay very, very little tax or whatever. So that that is a real challenge, I think. I think people can buy into the paying more. I don't see that being hard to get your head around. I think then what, what the government needs to is find a way is in terms of the messaging and the tax regime for the private equity companies like Cerberus and others who, who have all these myriad of companies in Holland or whatever, right? So I think you could sell the tax story if they could balance that argument with companies paying more as well. I think, Stephen, mm -hmm. it's all about messaging. You know, would you, would I completely you agree. agree. I mean, the the the, 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 the sort of what occasioned the discussion was the uh, in the program for government. There's a com there's a commitment to produce a commission on taxation and welfare, yeah. which is a really really good idea. Start thinking carefully about the structure of our taxation system and making recommendations that the government of the day can choose to you know take up or not. Um, the the the. The way for me, at least, to think about that is not, you know, in budget 2021, I don't think taxes should go up. Yeah. There's no scope for it. They're, you know, like who you go, like you're going to hurt people. Like your taxes, carbon taxes are going to go up, I think. Political um, side as well. I mean, the way things are bumbling along at the moment, yeah. anyone who Yeah, it's crazy, right? It's, it's crazy. But, but um, I think it is certainly the case, like, certainly the case that, um, if you could make the case that the state is more efficiently run, yeah, that more of your euro that you spend actually comes back to you in a better service, right? So we're not paying child benefit, but we're giving child child protection services and child and early childhood education, right? So, so the state is providing universal basic services effectively, um, free, and people see the benefits of the state to them in their local area and with their kids. That's really, really important. You know, um, but I, I think that it has to be done over a four or five year period. You know, you just bring it in slowly like the carbon tax. You just say to people, um, you just say to people that they will be yeah. experiencing this increase if the economy is growing 
if the economy is growing, um, then people will then the people will uh, be facing a certain uh, level of taxes, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And as they uh, face those certain level of taxes, they will end up in a situation where the economy is just able to um, the economy is just able to afford these yeah. increases. Remember, the Nordics didn't get there on day one. I know. You know, um, and a bit like this launch a care plan. Yeah. If there's a plan to just sort of take the politics out of it and just keep it like, look, you know, like imagine imagine the Commission on Taxation and Welfare happened two years ago. And it was sort of, okay, look, taxes are going to go up. We're going to introduce these new bands. We're going to, as the economy grows, we'll, in, we'll introduce a new tax, but we'll grandfather it in and it'll just slowly come into to force over, say, three or four years. So not that you'll barely notice it. You will notice it, but the economy has time to adjust. It's not, you're not hitting people on, you know, midnight of budget day, yeah. right? Um, uh, the, 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 the reality of the situation is that even now you'd have to suspend all that. Yeah. You'd have to go, ah, lads, look, pandemic, stall the digger, right? So you have to have some coordinated mechanism for doing this over a fairly long period of time, like five, six, seven years. You know? it's, it's difficult. They can't see me all Martin, like 18 months to go and it's like a complete political football of him. And so it's, it's so complicated. The normal life yeah. of a parliament, five years, this one, who knows what's going to happen in the next 12 months. But I get, I, like, it, it, it just makes total sense. Um, it's just complicated by the, by, the, by the current government setup and the politics in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, it's, it's a tricky, tricky game at the best of times. I want to get two things in quickly before you go. Um, our banks, uh, I'm talking to your banks, have been for six months. I've, I've said from the off, uh, I, I worked through the GFC. I've seen the damage, the global financial crisis done in the Irish banking system. I worked through the NAMA program. I dealt with NAMA. We acquired loans from NAMA. We funded exits out of NAMA. I've, I've worked with the private equity companies in the United States who bought these loans. And the conclusion that I'm coming to um, at the moment, Stephen, speaking to my colleagues in the banking system, is I, I, I do see some kind of NAMA 2 um, uh, coming into play next year. Um, that, that's the feedback. In terms of the NPLs, Bank of Ireland have written off a billion euro. The bank's only worth two billion euro. Ulster Bank have, have sent a, a, the failures out last week that they're talking about winding down the Irish operation. The news coming out of the mainstream lenders across the world is really, really, really poor and it's grim reading. I'm just wondering, your own sort of initial thoughts, have you looked into the strength of the Irish banking system? I know AIB already are own 72% by the state. Mm -hmm. um, Ulster Bank have got their own problems in Bank of Ireland as well. So would, what do you, I mean, it's not nice to predict NAMA 2s and the government having to support the, uh, the, the banking system again, but it's very difficult to come to any other alternative. I'm just wondering what your views are. Yeah, so if you just imagine, imagine that there's a cure found today. Mm. Right. So today, literally, and, we, and we're able to teleport it into people's veins. Mm -hmm. right? uh, so the virus is dead, not coming back. There's actually still going to be an NPL problem mm -hmm. right? today because there's pubs that haven't been open for six months. There's traders that haven't been doing stuff. There's professional service firms that have had their whole scene messed up. There's property developers that haven't been able to put a brick on top of another brick. Today there's an NPL problem, and we're we're recording this in in in, in early September. Um, six months in, 
extended a year. So this is a year at 18 months, right? NPL problem is worse again. Mm. I am a student of banking crises and I can tell you that they're always grand up until the precise moment that they're not. I read, a, I once read a book called Maynard's Revenge and it described uh, banks as, you know, the health of banks as marbles rolling off tables. You know, it's grand, it's grand, it's grand, it's grand. It's not. Same with this. Precisely the same with this. Um, I think, I don't want to predict that there's some, you know, Namatu coming down the line, because I don't know. Um, and anyone that pretends to know is wrong. Um, I think this version of Namatu would be incredibly complex to administer. It's not just property loans. It's everything from pubs to tech companies to everything. Like, how do you administer that? How do you work those out? Nama 1.0 wasn't exactly a great success. So yeah, um, the, the, so while I don't want to predict that and it's probably not smart to do so, um, we, we do have to engage with, with the extreme likelihood of distressed debt, which is the other side of that, right? The other side of that balance sheet is, is normal people who, who, you know, we're not, we're not talking Cerberus or whatever, right? Just normal people who are getting on with their daily lives in February have had that whole thing totally disrupted. You know, particularly if you had like the husband was in, you know, was in the arts, you know, and, and the wife was um, in accommodation or something, yeah. or if the family owned a few B&Bs or something. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're just in real trouble. And so a very good question is how to, how to work those debts out. And, you know, at what point do you, do they, do you are they classified as distressed debt? And here I'm actually quite hopeful because all the people who have been who are at the top table around the around the policy making table all of the people uh in the irish system lived through the last crisis so they i'm not just they didn't read books about it they lived through it they're all still in post they're all doing their thing and what that tells me is that they are able to react with the muscle memory of all of the mistakes that they made 10 years ago and I think that gives me a lot of hope, actually, that they'll do the right thing this time and faster, you know, and they'll actually, and in fairness, they'll actually have the legislative um, apparatus to be able to do so. Whereas 10 years ago or 12 years ago, they, they didn't, you know, there was no such thing as a bail-in regime or whatever. So I'm a bit more hopeful, perhaps, um, on those two scores. But uh, like I say, I just don't know. I think it's a really good point you make that it was only 10, well, 12 years ago that we had the last sort of GFC. So there is a lot of muscle memory there and, and you know, that experience should help us. I want to finish up very briefly uh, in the same way that you've done a bit of work and you know that, say, COVID might cost sort of up to 20 odd billion, maybe more, who knows, if it goes on and on and on. But in terms of we, uh, I'm, as I said to you, and you know, I'm talking to you from Belfast and it looks to me, the Bank of England, um, put a, a memo out about two months ago to, to basically the banks to expect a no-deal Brexit. They were putting them in notice. I'm wondering, has, has anyone in the Republic of Ireland modelled that up in terms of what a no-deal Brexit might cost the Irish economy? Is that oh, yeah. I mean, I mean well, what's really interesting about it actually is the... the so we all, we all know we, we're, we're actually quite, quite well-versed in this now because it's been four years, you know? Um, and the first, the first kind of costs of a no-deal Brexit came out before the referendum. Um, uh, the SRI did a study, I think the month before or two months before the uh, the referendum itself. 
um, showing that, you know, we don't export that much to the UK anymore. It's 11% of our trade goes to the UK. You know, in the 1940s, it was 90, 95% or something. And now it's 11%. Our largest trading partner is not the UK. It's Belgium, actually. Um, uh, because of we're, we're a pharmaceutical exporting giant. Um, so when you think about the UK, you're looking at legacy sectors, particularly food and transport, haulage. Um, there, there, there have been massive, massive policy efforts to get these businesses into a situation where they're A, currency hedged, B, uh, uh, have external markets to source, you know, uh, and see where the um, where they will be okay in the event of no, no deal Brexit. It was a report out last week to show that the the firms that are most affected by COVID are not the firms that are most affected by Brexit by and large, which is pretty good because it means you can you can generate two different policy mixes to help them. But um, that doesn't mean that Brexit isn't going to be a disaster for the Irish economy, and particularly around the border counties. Um, but the reality of it is we know what the problem is and we know how to fix it. Uh, what we don't know is whether you cauterize it. Yeah. And so, so you just kind of go, look, there have to be borders. How are we going to do it? A no deal Brexit implies a border. That's just what it is. How do you do it? Um, I, I, I think we, in a no deal Brexit scenario, what we will have and what we will see, and maybe we can talk about this again um, at more length, is we will see a rushed and imperfect and maybe maybe a little bit scary, we will see a rush towards a discussion about reunifying the island, which is maybe 20 years too early. Um, and I think that that discussion, if it happens, is going to happen the way I would like that discussion to happen is in the context of like, okay, what services are we going to do? Like, forget about this, you know, forget about the flag thing and the, 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 you know, the flag thing and the, the identity and the political issues. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm not saying they're not important. Obviously they're important. My point is on, you know, if, 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 if on January the 1st, 2023, the Island of Ireland is reunified, Mrs. Murphy from the Falls Road is going to need to have her teeth checked, yeah. right? And Mrs. Murphy from Ballycotton and Cork is going to have to have her teeth checked. Yeah. And they're going to have to have the same system, yeah. mind of them. Yeah. Um, and that kind of focus on the key systems, education, welfare, social protection, higher education, health, that's a really good place to start. And it all starts with higher, um, higher rate of tax, yeah. right? Um, start, you know, everyone's going to have to pay more tax. And I think that, I think that that discussion is probably not best had in the context of a giant pandemic yeah, or in a rush, because there's lots of people who think, no, no, I'd rather not have that please. You know, um, and you'll have lots of people who are like, why, why now? Why do this now? Why are we, you know, so I would be very careful and cautious about that. Um, simply because um, the probability of getting it wrong is incredibly high. Yeah, I think you're. I think what you've said out is is totally fair. I think I think what you've identified is what we don't want to happen is another 
Brexit shambles, um, where everybody thought that it was going, they were going to lose the vote, and then they won the day, and now it's just complete shambles. And I think then we can't have that in 22-23. I think it is, you know, that there's a rush for this unity vote. And it is something that I would like to return to again with you to get the Republic of Ireland economic sort of mind on how a united Ireland or a new Ireland or an all-island economy would play it out. What I can say is, you know, I'm 43 years of age. There was no chat of a united Ireland in my whole lifetime until the Brexit vote. Yeah. And now it is... um, it is daily conversation between a lot of people um, around how this whole thing is, is going to play out over the next two, three years. So look, it's fascinating stuff. Stephen, we covered so much ground. It was brilliant to speak to you. Some really important stuff there. Um, I just want to say thank you very much for your time and I hope to catch up with you again soon. Look after yourself. Uh, thanks a million, Tyler. Take care. Thanks again. Moving swiftly on, it's now time that I speak to Seamus Lehany, the Policy Manager for Logistics UK. This is Seamus's first time on the show. You've probably seen Seamus if you've been watching the news or paying attention to the Brexit negotiations and discussions over the last nine months. Seamus is one of the voices of reason I would describe him as, and he represents thousands of members. And I really lifted the bonnet on this conversation because I wanted to find out what does Brexit really mean for Northern Ireland, for its economy, for its businesses? You know, how good or bad may it be? What is the best scenario we can hope for? We talk about that. And also, what is the potentially worst scenario, worst potential outcome of Brexit for the Northern Ireland economy? We talk about lots of things in between. It's a really good conversation. It helped me understand where things are at. It is very chaotic at the moment. It must be a nightmare to try and figure out Boris Johnson's next move. But the European Union are not straightforward either. They are a very experienced bunch of negotiators. They're acting for 27 countries. But with 100 days to go to the Brexit cliff, it's about time everybody got to move on and try to come to some kind of an understanding. This is myself and Seamus Lehany's conversation about Brexit. It brings you up to date. I throw some numbers at it in terms of the actual trade, the figures, how much we sell to Europe, how much we sell to the Republic of Ireland, all of those kinds of things. I hope you get some value from this. Let's roll the tape. Seamus, how's it going? You're really welcome to Money and Plants. I've been trying to get somebody for a long time um, to come on and sort of explain the recent shenanigans with Brexit. And with 100 days to go, I thought you were the man. So you're very welcome on the show. How are you keeping? Uh, thanks for having me, Connor. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy times at the moment. We've come through um, six months of COVID and the impact that's had in our industry. A huge upheaval um, because as a service provider in logistics, you know, we, we depend on the health of the wider economy. So... We're coming out the far side of that now, going into some unknowns, and then we've got obviously in the horizon Brexit and the end of the transition, 100 days away. So a lot of work to do in a short space of time. Yeah, the clock's definitely ticking. Like it's it's um it's not it's it's, it's just went so fast. Um, we're sort of at the end game, and we're only really getting into the thick of the negotiations, probably. But just briefly, tell me, you're the policy manager for Logistics UK. So your organization, a little bit of background before we get stuck into the Brexit chat. Yeah, um, so Logistics UK, we were formerly known as the Freight Transport Association. Well, we changed our name there just a few months ago. 
Um, and we changed our name obviously to reflect the industry wider because we're the largest trade association in the UK that covers all of um, like transport, supply chains, logistics, and our members. We have over 18,000 members across the UK. Um, and they are from road background, air, sea, rail. And then we have a sister association down in um, the Republic of Ireland, FTA Ireland, um, who have around about 500 members there. So we have a broad reach of membership. And obviously, um, Brexit, obviously, massive impact as the people who are moving goods were probably one of the industries most affected right okay so you really have a your foot on the on the pedal in terms of the uh, connectivity with the business community and i suppose in a broader sense then like you know brexit we've known about this for four years like is there really that much anxiety within the business community about brexit so business businesses who who people entrepreneurs who own businesses in northern ireland you know is is your members telling you, like, are they genuinely concerned about Brexit or, or not? Like, I'm trying to figure this out. It doesn't really impact me. I'm in the financial services industry. Well, it does because, you know, we, we lend money, we deal with banks, so of course it affects me. But just trying to get a sense, like, how, what is the level of anxieties around your members right now? What are their main concerns? There is, um, there is a lot of anxiety. I, I do get a sense, however, a bit of a health check recently. Um, some people, I, I think, maybe... If you asked them six, 12 months ago in Brexit, on a scale of one to 10, how worried they were, they would have been up there with an eight, a nine. Probably now, a lot of them might reflect and they might go down to a seven or a six, not because Brexit has eased in their opinion, but because COVID and the response and the impact that's had in their business has overtaken that. And this is the fear we have in our industry, is a lot of people have taken the eye off the ball. The anxiety has dropped with Brexit. And quite rightly, I suppose, you know, it's all about keeping, keeping themselves in business, keeping the business viable. So they're focused on getting through the, the COVID impact that's had in the economy. Um, and the fear that's had, when I speak to a lot of logistics companies, is that when they go and speak to their customers, it could be a manufacturer, a retailer, something like that. And they're saying, listen, are you getting prepared? Have you got your commodity codes, packaging details, so on and so forth around customs? They kind of there's a there's a bit of an ambiguity there where they almost shrug the shoulders and say, well, listen, sure, you'll take care of that for me. And there's almost like this sense where they're falling back, just thinking, my holly or my logistics, my freight forwarder, they're going to look after all the customs work for me. But it doesn't work like that. You know, we, we will certainly help, um, you know, process, we'll help, um, you know, deliver the goods. But actually, when it comes down to actually doing the import declarations, um, uh, SPS around sanitary, phytosanitary, agri-food products and so on and so forth. The, the responsibility lies firmly with the trader, with the company moving the goods. Um, mm -hmm. We simply need as a logistics provider, we need that data. And I suppose, you know, going forward, you know, data is going to become the biggest commodity um, between the logistics operator and, and their customers going forward because nothing will move without the correct data. Yeah, well, I was, I'm speaking to you on this episode, actually, Stephen Kinsella, um, just after this conversation, and he was telling me that in terms of the Republic of Ireland in the 1940s, 90% of the trade went to the UK. Um, now it's something like 10% uh, or 11% of the Republic of Ireland's goods go to the UK. So it's a huge shift there. Really, I've heard Jeffrey Donaldson talk about this, but like, what, what is the percentage of trade in Northern Ireland that goes to the UK? Are, are you over the figures there, roughly? Um, we're roughly, we, um, we would sell per annum around about £8 billion worth of trade to GB. Um, so we, we sell £8 billion to GB. Um, we buy about £10 billion a year from GB. So um, 
with the Republic of Ireland, it, we're probably looking around maybe we sell maybe just over two billion a year to the Republic of Ireland, which is still you know that's punching above its weight when you compare the populations population on that. Um, so the UK internal market is obviously very important for us, and primarily a lot of that produce that is agri-food. Agri-foods are our biggest industry here, our biggest manufacturing. And it's that, you know, it's that ability basically to, to sell the food products to the big retailers in England as our biggest market. And quite often, a lot of what we sell to England actually comes back to us in, in the trucks for the supermarkets here. But also as well, I think um, there is some gaps, obviously, in the analysis and what, what we send across to GB as well, because there's a lot of products that we sell to businesses in England, for example. And then those products are then sold on to rest of world and EU. Yeah. So by putting up, our, and we don't really know the full impact of that trade chain. until Brexit's in, yeah. Yeah, supply chain stuff. How much does, um, so Northern Ireland sells about 2 billion to Republic of Ireland. How much do we buy in goods and services off the Republic of Ireland? It is around about, uh, I think it's around about a billion pound. Um, figures are a bit sketchy. I, I've spent a lot of time working on these things, Connor. Um, but off the top of my head, I think it's around, we, we certainly sell more to the Republic of Ireland than we buy from them. So we rely more on that access to trade than they would, I suppose. Well, it's a fairly big number that like, we sell 8 billion quid of, of goods to the UK. So it's quite a significant, it's a 50 billion pound economy in Northern Ireland. So probably look at this, just under 20% of, of, of the total economy here to the UK. So it's a pretty substantial part of, it's pretty important that we get and as the idea then, if, if we get, if, if Johnson gets his free trade deal with the EU, is that, that just means that things stay as they are. Is that what a, a free trade deal means? Um, a free trade deal, I suppose it, it doesn't do away with the need for customs. Okay, so there still will be the need for that. What basically a free trade deal can do, it can maybe align things like tariffs and regulatory standards. So it can certainly make the cost of goods slightly cheaper and it can make the movement of them easier as well um but I, I i suppose you know we're always going to need some form you know once you're out of that trading block with the eu there's still the need basically um to to do the formalities and, and obey the rules so so there's still an administration um commerce and potentially an administration cost to businesses and it will potentially slow down so even the best case scenario there, say we, we arrive on the 1st of January or, or whatever, if this is possible, the best deal that we can hope for at the minute is this free trade deal is up with Johnson, mm -hmm. right? And, and even with that then, there's going to be obviously the administration downside, which companies will have to get their head around, and then there might be issues around customs. I see they're, they're down. Well, apparently they're going to start putting up some infrastructure around Lauren that, but is that, is that it then? So it's, so, you know, from a Northern Irish perspective, it's the administration side of things, and then it might slow down the process around customs. Is that it? Is that the best case scenario? Yeah, best case scenario is, yeah, we get a zero-zero tariff agreement with the EU. Um, so it means basically that any goods arriving in Northern Ireland from GB do not have to pay the EU tariff. And that's probably one of the, one of the negotiation happening at present between the EU and the UK, because under the protocol, anything deemed of being at risk a GB product that's deemed to have been at risk of entering the EU market um, should pay the EU tariff upon arrival into Northern Ireland. Mm. So let's say there's a particular commodity that has a high tariff if you move it from England direct into France. The EU might say, okay, 
if that product is arriving into Belfast from Liverpool, for example, we deem that as high risk because that product might be trying to evade the tariffs that are due on it when it arrives into France or Holland or anything like that. So what would happen if you're the importer in Belfast to importing that good in is that you would then pay whatever the EU tariff is directly to HMRC and then you would then claim your rebate on that tariff. You need evidence that the product would, would have stayed within Northern Ireland. So if you can show that the product was then sold to some shops here in Northern Ireland or was used in, in production of a prod, product that was made here, then you'd get the full rebate. But let's say you brought in a lorry load of things and there was 20 pallets and 10 pallets you then send, set, sold to your customer in Dublin and 10 stayed here. Well, then you'd only be eligible for a 50% rebate on that tariff. And I suppose what that does, that kind of just levels the playing field. It means that there's no incentive for someone to try and use Northern Ireland as the back door to get goods into the single market. Because mm -hmm. ultimately, once they're into Belfast, um, mm -hmm. they're then within free circulation with the EU. So if you take a lorry load of beef into Belfast, you know that can that can be in Milan, you know, a couple of days later, um, with no restriction. Right. So from an economic point of view, then, so you know, the best economies, the most successful economies in the world, are open economies. They're welcoming economies. They're economies that work with as less paperwork and red tape as possible. So, the best case scenario from a Brexit perspective, from a Northern Ireland point of view, then, is this zero zero free trade deal, which will yeah. still mean customs checks and regulatory checks and paperwork and all that sort of stuff that really is not good for business full stop right so that's the sort of best case scenario is that, is that fair yeah that would be it you know you're looking at the customs um you've got the time and the admin that takes right. uh and then the regulatory checks that that's a burden as well because it just means anything that you um take into northern ireland or you make here has to adhere to eu regulations as well Right, so that's pretty straightforward. So not really a great place to be doing business in. If I'm with yeah. I was advocate with my investor hat on, if I'm an investor or manufacturer in Munich or France or Paris or wherever, Northern Ireland, right? Bit, bit of a hassle to get in there. What What's the worst case scenario then, Seamus? Roughly like just, you know, what? On a, I'm just trying to get a sense to my listeners, break it down in simple format. Best case, that's what it is. Worst case. Is worst case where there's no deal and they're fighting over putting up posts and borders around the border and that whole thing. Yeah, you know yeah I, think the, I think the biggest fear we have here is um, a no deal, high tariffs um, with, the, with the risk rate of goods coming into Northern Ireland being deemed high. Um, the, the, the UK government says that they st will still implement the Northern Ireland Protocol, but there's some areas of it that they may diverge or interpret differently. But, but let's face it, a lot of the internal market bill and what we're seeing at the moment, it's not about protecting the Northern Ireland trade, it's more about getting um, things like um, state aid um, for businesses across the wider UK um, solved. And it's also um, making sure there's no formalities in goods leaving Northern Ireland bound for GB as well. But the worst case scenario, yes, would be something like high tariffs, making the cost of business high. Um, and then basically maybe the EU being forced um, to have checks on goods entering the Republic of Ireland, for example, from Northern Ireland, because maybe they can't trust. If all trust is gone, if they think goods are flooding Northern Ireland from GB and they're then finding their way into the, the wider EU, they would be left with no option but to enforce that. Um, but HMRC at the same time have said they will not be um, implementing any border um, between the Republic and North. 
Um, so what it means, basically, you'd have one-way traffic enforcement and tariffs. So um, you would be faced with goods leaving Northern Ireland, driving down to Dundalk, faced with tariffs and regulatory controls. Um, but meanwhile, um, you would look at your competitor products from the Republic driving past your premises with no tariffs and no checks. Yeah. So it creates a huge unlevel playing field on the island for a lot of business. And that's a big worry for like agri-food sector and farming. Mm-hmm. And, and going back to what we said earlier, you know, when we look at the figures, I, I just I have the figures here in front of me, actually. And um, it's the 2017 figures are the latest. But yeah, our sales, Northern Ireland exports and goods to the Republic was 2.9 billion, actually. And uh, our imports from the Republic was 2.2 billion. So quite, quite substantial there, really. So it was 2.2 billion we bought from the Republic of Ireland. Yeah. 2.9 we sold. Yeah. Very good. Okay, well, from so so the best case scenario we've talked about, the worst case scenario then, just to, to finalise on that, you're really talking about, you know, no deal, um, huge political, potential political issues from an economic standpoint. Uh, Northern Ireland becomes a very unfriendly sort of, you know, no-go zone as far as I'm concerned from an investor's perspective. You know, just from my background, I'm, I'm sort of going, you know, there's no deal. So you're going to see, you're going to see a continuation then of, the capital potentially moving out of Northern Ireland into Republic of Ireland. It's, it's even as well. It's, it's that no deal. It's like um, we have talk about maybe um, you know breaking international treaties, breaking the law to bend the rules with the protocol here, and legal jeopardy obviously isn't the best for business confidence. Um, it's a bit like you know, would you buy a house from someone but you didn't have planning permission or no building control approval for the house, even if it was a great deal? You probably wouldn't. And that's how a lot of foreign direct investors would look at Northern Ireland in worst case scenario, because they would think to themselves, well, will we have market access to the EU or the UK if we set up business in Northern Ireland, whether in six months or six years time? There'd be that uncertainty. Yeah, my, my concern was always like for whenever Brexit broke, I was in London the next morning and I was actually at a huge, uh, a big sort of legal uh, summer party the night before. And everybody was expecting, obviously, you know, the Brexiteers to lose. And then it dawned on everyone that Brexit won the day. And my big concern was this sort of uh, movement of capital out of Northern Ireland. And we've already seen, you know, some of our biggest companies have, have started to invest in the Republic of Ireland. And I think um, I, I just have huge concerns from an economic standpoint around how this is going to play out for NIPLC because already our economy is struggling. We're relying on a subvention from London every year to keep the lights on and throw into the middle of the mix a once in a hundred year pandemic. It's, it's all fairly deflating. I suppose, um, Seamus, if you were uh, European, if you were Michel Barnier and you were negotiating, there was one person you wouldn't want to really negotiate with or leading the negotiations, it would be Boris Johnson because Again, playing devil's advocate, he's a very, very hard man to read. You know, you don't know, you know, the, if you look at the, the last couple of weeks, you know, with the chaos that's been going on in Westminster, it looks as if this is going to go to the wire, um, like with 100, less than 100 days to go. So, like with Theresa May's approach, you know, she's fairly bland, fairly straight, let's go, get it done. But with, like Boris Johnson, I mean, he's totally unplayable. So it really is up in the air. So from a Northern Irish perspective, it's just not helpful, in my view, that someone with that particular nature in terms of his own personality 
it, it, it again is another problem for businesses in Northern Ireland. Would you agree with my assertion? Yeah, there? it's the unpredictability. Yeah. Um, but I suppose the masters of negotiations are the EU. And I suppose this is new territory. You have to remember, this is quite new for the UK team because the UK really haven't had to do negotiations like this in probably in, in you know, 20, 30 years. The EU have handled all these negotiations, whether it was with the Chinese, the Americans, the Japanese, etc. So I, I, I think it's the first case who blinks first. Um, but, you know, I suppose, you know, when, when, when you look at this, if we play the cards right here um, with, the, with the protocol, and this is the thing I've been saying to people, and I think Theresa May got this, you know, Theresa May, um, you know, we were lucky enough, we met her twice when she came across here to Belfast, and she got it, she under, the penny dropped, and that's why she changed her stance with regards to the backstop and things like this, because she knew there had to be some type of special deal for here. And, and that was obviously her undoing in the long run. But, you know, I spoke to a business yesterday. There was a haulage company that called me yesterday and had their client on the call with them. And the client brings in sports equipment from Germany. And they couldn't get their head around it. But it was new to them where they um, realized that if they bring in sports equipment from Germany into Northern Ireland, that there will be no customs and no tariffs. However, a similar company in England, Scotland, Wales, bringing the same products in from Germany, will have to do customs declarations and pay the appropriate tariffs. And this was kind of, you know, I think there's still a lot of unknown out there because this guy was like, the penny dropped and he couldn't believe it. He went, really? And I'm like, yeah, that's it. And I says, it's even easier if you ship the goods directly into Dublin and drive them up here. Mm -hmm. I says, they're in free circulation. You don't even have to move them under what's called the rules of transit where you have to raise a transit document. So it's going to be, you know, that's one way where we have this unfettered access with the rest of the EU. Um, businesses here hopefully will be able to sell their goods to the UK market. You know, um, you know th th that £8 billion pound a year will, will continuity of trade. But also basically, you know, the, the $2.9 we sell to the Republic and, and the $1.6 we sell to the rest of the EU every year. That, that will be completely unfettered and it will give us an advantage over other UK businesses in England, Scotland, Wales. So there's something to play on there. You know, probably the best example I had recently was on, on trucks in our sector. You know, a typical large lorry costs around about 100 grand. Now, a truck looks like um, it will attract a tariff of around about 10% from January onwards. So if you're going to buy a new nice Volvo or Scania truck, um, you're, you're going to pay 10 grand extra on the ticket price going forward. However, and I've spoken to the local dealers here in, in Northern Ireland, I've said, listen, all you have to do with those trucks, when they roll off the production line in Sweden, you raise a transit document that costs around about 40 euros. Uh, and that's basically evidence that this product is staying within the single market. And that truck then comes to Northern Ireland and there's no tariff and no customs. So in theory, you'll be able to buy a lorry, or indeed this works for cars, a lot cheaper in Northern Ireland than you will be in other parts of the UK. So that's an advantage. And I think they're the types of things we need to build on and capitalize. And I can see a lot of supply chains. I've had some wholesalers on to me who are already looking about um, changing their supply chains, maybe um, going to continental Europe now and source some products rather than dealing with the people they always have done maybe in England. Okay. So just so Northern Ireland sells 2.9 billion to Republic of Ireland, 1.6 billion to the European market. And what do we buy from Europe? Uh, 1.9 billion. Okay, so we buy 1.9 billion quid's worth of goods every year from the European market. Yeah. 
So, and, and on top of, I suppose, you, you know, you also have to add in the Republic as well. So, you know, nearly over 4 billion there we buy from the EU every year. I sorry, that 1.9 billion that, that we buy from Europe excludes the Republic, Republic of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that is important. So just finding in, what's, what's the chances of, uh, you know, I'm, I've heard of the, uh, I'm involved with the FSB and we talked about a, an economic zone and an area of special status and, you know, you would imagine there'd be international support for Northern Ireland of all places to get a bit of a, a leg up and become some kind of a free port, you know, economic zone. Fair enough, it might be difficult to, to talk 27 European countries into that, but where does that all sit at the minute? Is that completely dead in the water now, Seamus? Um, yeah, you know, like I have a deal, like in logistics, like, you know, we've always had like, you know, bonded warehouses, which are almost like a mini kind of free port. Free ports, I don't think they're the silver bullet. That a lot of people think I think um, some people think they're a solution but they didn't work before there were free ports in the UK before and they were done away with all the, a lot of the time what they do they create job displacement um, and I think what we've got to remember as well if you create a free port in Northern Ireland under the rules of free ports you're creating an internal border um, so the you know that has to be you know a free port has to be policed and managed accordingly but also as well it comes down to the level playing field and the eu and especially the republic of ireland are very conscious of this if northern ireland got a special leg up with uh, with even like a, a free zone or something like that that made made doing business here more uh, advantageous um I, I i can't imagine the economy down the republic of ireland would be um over overwhelmingly supportive of that um, the last thing they want is a company leaving Dundalk and moving to Yuri because there's a free zone created in Warren Point Port or something like that. So I think I, I'd be fairly, you know, guarded and cautious about maybe how, how likely that is because we've got to be mindful. I think it's the level playing field, the big issue um, going forward. So whatever we have here has to be, you know, there has to be some equality whatever's available to businesses on the other side of the border as well. Fair enough. Okay, and so so finally, then, what what way is this going to play out? There's just under a hundred days to go. Like, is it can this can they be still still talking on uh, Boxing Day? You know, can, is this going to go up to the wire and then even into January? Or how how do you see this playing out? Um, we've got the 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 Northern Ireland um, Special Joint Committee meets on Monday again. Um, I, I by by no means um, I think there'll be any handshakes on Monday and agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think it will go on to um, November um, at, at, at least. You, you know, hopefully it doesn't go up to Christmas. I think Christmas is going to be tough enough this year for a lot of people because of the COVID restrictions. We don't need this getting in the way as well. Um, and I'm conscious that Northern Ireland, we're the first to put our toes into the water with regards to implementing the new procedures because in um, GB, there's no, going to be um, no import formalities until maybe as late as july next year but we go live on the first of january so you know we've got to have the it systems ready we've got to have the infrastructure ready and the longer we dwell and negotiate it it, it makes northern ireland um less prepared um england can live with it because they'll have six months from the first of january to, to get their house in order we're the pilot project and if things are left too late, we simply won't be ready. But it's interesting, um, the you know, work is happening behind the scenes. You know, when I talk to HMRC, the software systems are progressing. Um, I'd be fairly confident the software systems, the IT platforms on customs and SPS will be operational. 
and, and government showed they can, you know, when things like with the furlough scheme, etc., you know, when, when time's up against it, they can implement change quickly. It can be done. Uh, and then there's a tender out at the moment as well for the border control posts at the three ports here. Uh, and that closes, um, I think it's tomorrow, actually. Um, I think within five days, the tender is going to be awarded. So um, there's a quick turnaround on that. And those border control posts, they're shovel ready because they're in ports. They don't need to adhere to, to the normal planning um, controls. So I think things can happen quickly, but you know, as you said, Connor, you know, the longer we go on with these negotiations and seeing who blinks first, the people who suffer most are businesses here in Northern Ireland, really. There you go, folks. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you really enjoyed it as much as I did recording it and editing it and making it and pulling it together. It was another great show thanks to professor stephen kinsella brilliant as ever and really special thanks to seamus lehenny uh, who came on and spoke fantastically well and really cleared a lot of things up for me in my own mind brexit we all know what it is but do you really know what might happen i thought it was really interesting around the best case scenario the worst case scenario one of the things we didn't talk about in our brexit conversation was the the political uncertainty that Brexit has brought about, all of this chat about a united Ireland, a unity referendum, an all-island economy, what's that going to look like? How is that going to play out? I think it's something that I'm going to return to in the podcast. I am lining some experts up to talk to us about the, all of those issues, which I think, I personally think, are going to play out in the next two or three years. Um, I, do, I think it's unavoidable. So there you go. In terms of wrapping the show up this week, I want to talk to you about something because I've been, uh, I've been sort of kind of concerned and, and a bit annoyed about the lack of balance to the pandemic and the COVID-19 reporting on mainstream media, particularly on the radio and TV stations. Uh, particularly in the last couple of weeks as well, there's just no balance to this COVID-19 and pandemic discussion. I think it's very, very unhelpful. And I think it is creating an awful lot of fear and anxiety around a lot of people that I know. I think there's there's been no chat at all about a really important part of this pandemic, which is what? Well, it's about how do we actually build our immune systems? How do we improve our health? Because that is the best way to fight any kind of virus, disease, illness, or pandemic. So instead of spending hours pontificating to people about how dangerous this is and how many people are going to die, and all of those things, which are which are hugely traumatic and, and, and serious issues, why not devote some time of your programs, a small slot even of your shows, to advising people how we can all fight the virus? You know, there's too much talk about a vaccine that currently doesn't exist. You know, I had a doctor previously on Money and Plants um, who explained that you know, it's not gonna be straightforward to get a vaccine and he thinks it will be a combination of different medicines which will limit the impact of this virus. So you know, we don't have a vaccine and we might not have a vaccine. So what is the best way for you and your family to fight COVID-19? And I'm telling you, I've told you this, I had Dr. Connor Curley on the podcast before, we talked about the uh, good and the power of supplementing vitamin D. There are now a number of trials to show that you know, many people who have been really badly hit by COVID-19 have been vitamin D deficient. And we know all of this. This is all out there if you want to check it out. So I just want to leave you with some thoughts 
on how you can fight the virus. Uh, and how I've been fighting the virus. I live with an underlying health condition and multiple sclerosis. I am off drugs and all forms of pharmaceutical products since 2016. I live on a plant-based diet, so I live on fruits and vegetables. People say, well, what, you don't eat meat or dairy? What do you eat? Well, I eat the same as you, only I exclude meat and dairy products. So at the moment, I'm eating lots of stews and soups and curries, lots of veg. Um, and I'm really working on reducing the levels of inflammation going into my body. And I think one of the, the number one way that you can fight and build your immune system is to improve your nutrition. You are what you eat. We know all of this, but how many of you are making the change? Have you made a conscious decision to eat healthier throughout this pandemic? My view is that you should. There's a couple of other things I want to leave you with that I think and I know will build your immune system. The second thing then is to supplement vitamin D. There is lots of information and research and science around vitamin D. And as I said to you a couple of minutes ago, there is a connection now between those people who have been badly hit by COVID who are vitamin D deficient. The other supplement that I take and I encourage you to look into is vitamin C. Vitamin C is something, a supplement that will build your immune system. It will help you fight against any virus. And then the next two things, the final two things, is exercise. I'm encouraging if you follow me on social media, on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter, you will know that I exercise at least 30 minutes every single day. And exercise improves your brain health, your physical health, your mental health, and it helps you fight any kind of virus and it builds your immune system. And finally, 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 I'm going to leave you with this thought. It's whenever we sleep, it's whenever we sleep that our body kicks into gear and starts the healing process. So whenever we're asleep at night, that's when all of the healing and the repairing, the natural healing and repairing takes place. And I, I have uh, talked about this book before in the podcast, but if you want a book recommendation, it is Dr. Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep book. And it really will blow your mind, uh, but sleep is so important. And it's now accepted that we need seven or eight hours, adults need seven or eight hours sleep uh, every single night. And that will really help build your immune system it will help fight COVID-19 and it will help you heal and the body repair itself. So there's a number of things that I just wanted to close the episode this week. I think there's too much fear going on out there. I don't think there's enough of this actually encouraging and advising and helping people understand how we can all build our immune systems. Okay, that's the show wrapped up for me this week. I hope you really enjoy it. Do me a favor. Let me know what you think if you enjoyed this week's show. If there are any topics that you want me to talk about in the next number of weeks, let me know. Send me an email, connor at connordivine.com. I have to tell you that I know I haven't had a show out in maybe four or five, six weeks, but you know I only want to make really good episodes and really good shows. I want the content to maintain of a high standard. And what I can tell you is that I have a number of fantastic guests lined up over the next month or so to come on to Money and Plants. I'm really excited about it. Can't tell you anything else. But look, wherever you're listening to this podcast, it might be Apple, it could be Google, whatever platform it is, do me a favor, share it with one friend, somebody you think might be interested in business, economics, health, and ask them to share it as well. So look, all I can do is ask you to look after yourself, but more importantly, look after each other.